how's it going? Uh, today I'm joined by my friend Jacob Gerlach. Um, I'll let him introduce himself. Yes, I'm Jacob, and I suppose I met Sam in college, and there I studied economics and math and have a minor in statistics as well. And lately, for fun, I've been doing essentially a series of essays about human well-being and what factors matter, why, and how they matter. All right. So, you want to talk any, about anything specific? Yeah. So, that? I suppose, like, the, the best place to start is with Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, which was formulated, I believe, in the 40s. And he was essentially the first psychologist who looked at human flourishing versus human uh, detriment. And he aligned the needs of humans into a pyramid, hierarchical, which is the lowest one is physiological needs, which is just sort of food, water, uh, pretty much that's it. And then the second one is uh, for safety and avoiding just pain and being cold and wet, essentially. <laughs> uh, the third tier is community, which is just social affiliation and social attachment and being involved within a broader community. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth tier is self-esteem, which kind of defines both external ranking within a community, but also one's own perception of their self. Mm-hmm. So there is kind of this internal external pull of that tier and then last the top is self-actualization which is kind of using your energy to sharpen your skills and to improve your abilities in a given domain okay so basically is that the the human flourishing is is supposed to be, I guess, increased um, once you have each tier of this met more so than without, I guess. Like, uh, you would you would be happier, in theory, near the top of this pyramid versus the bottom? Yeah, ideally. And ideally, it's also knowing what to be attentive to when. Kind of like, you know, if you don't have a community... Self-esteem isn't really going to be a relevant player mm-hmm. in your well-being. So as you go up, your attention to your needs should change as well. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, like, um, we had talked about this before, but, like, if you... It's a kind of an immediacy thing. So, like, what's at the forefront of your attention would be something lower on the scale than than higher up so like you're not thinking about maybe your job prospects in the next month when you are being chased by a bear that's like safety comes prior to any of these other things like in the immediate if like the physiological the baseline thing is like water food so if you're like dying of thirst you're not thinking of like oh man i gotta (laughs) keep up with the joneses and get a new car or whatever um Okay, so um, are there? <clears throat> so, what about the like you were talking before about like the motivational patterns to move up this scale, like intrinsic, extrinsic? Yeah, yeah. So I, 
the basic thing, and like for me, the most important study ever done on human well-being is one where they took two categories of people. One were lottery winners, and the other was paraplegics. Mm -hmm. And they tested them sort of like right after they either lost the ability to walk or won their lottery. And then obviously there's a huge uh, decrease and a huge increase for the respective groups. But then a year later, what they found is that everyone kind of came back to the same baseline. Mm -hmm. So they're after a year, and this is called hedonic ad adaptation, mm -hmm. you just kind of adjust to the life that you're embedded within. Mm -hmm. And that's especially true with circumstantial things. And so what that kind of points out is that it's not so much like where we live and what conditions we live in, although beyond obviously deprivation, like right, you right, need right. to have food, water, shelter, all that. Mm -hmm. But what really kind of drives our well-being in the long run is kind of our behavior, like what we do because it requires our attention, mm -hmm. like it, it's much harder to fall back and be like, oh, this is just a condition of my life. Mm -hmm. So with that, with behaviors being our main driver in the long run for well-being, anything that drives behavior is going to be a driver of well-being. And so that's why motivations become kind of interesting from that point of view. So motivations will drive our behavior, and then that will affect our well-being. Right. Okay, so like... Um, about the um, the like paraplegic versus <clears throat> lottery winner, there's kind of that regression to the mean sort of thing. Yeah, so like that whole um, uh, there was a thing in Thinking Fast and Slow where they were talking about these like fighter pilots in a simulation or whatever, and they're like, if you do like, it, it was kind of the reward system of like negative punishment versus positive. Um, uh, affirmation to mm -hmm. to the people so the people who did really well um, they were given positive affirmations they were like or positive feedback whatever said like great mm -hmm. job you did really well and then the people who got um, like below average or, or like not very good they got these negative feedback and and from that they concluded that uh, or or and then those people the people who got the positive reward um, kind of sunk back down towards the average and then the people mm -hmm. who got the negative um, consequence or whatever, they came back up to the average as well. So like regressing towards the average mm -hmm. kind of um, led them to believe that negative feedback was better because they came up, but it's like that those kind of might be outliers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of jumbling my words here. But. And that's a great, like, sort of, like, correlation and causation example of being mm -hmm. like, okay, let's not just take, like, the instant reaction of, like, this is what we see, this is what it is. Like, kind of, like, deriving that, how everyone kind of pulls to the middle. And so mm -hmm. that does kind of happen mm -hmm. with happiness in the long run. So, like, even, like, within, like, marriages or jobs or new houses there's like normally and even bad things like losing your legs or mm -hmm. losing your job like people tend to have that immediate hit mm -hmm. and then be like well this is just what it is like after time goes on things normally get adapted to i will say with the exception um like the loss of social connections are probably one of the ones that stand out there are a lot of cases where like a loss of a loved one will 
almost sometimes net like normally it is adapted to like mm-hmm. in somewhat but you know there's always kind of that uh oh i mean like real permanent loss mm-hmm. just because we are such social creatures right that that's one thing that is much harder to adapt to i think yeah there's right. a interesting thing that i've always found interesting is like um with the loss of like a loved one or a social connection say like if they moved away or if they passed away um there's there's this like would you rather that i always think about is like would you rather lose your dominant arm or lose your mother or lose mm-hmm. like so how how important to your your sense of being is this person is it more significant than like a physical appendage mm-hmm. like so is this person you rely on all the time um or is it just you know I, I don't know i think that's just like an interesting to think is like how how much would i be willing to give away of myself to keep this social connection and it's like more than you would probably think if you really yeah. think about it yeah i think that is one thing that people normally like especially just now because and this is something i wrote about over the winter in my community essay um, is just about how underplayed community is. I mean, it's like, we have so many social messages of, like, think about, like, Harry Potter or any Disney movie. Like, that's pretty much always just, like, like, the essence of it is just, like, the importance of community and social attachment. Mm-hmm. But, like, biologically speaking, evolutionarily speaking, like, there's such a deep drive for community just because it was essentially, uh, like... It was essentially synonymous with having safety in numbers mm-hmm. and security in the asset of your tribe mm-hmm. because you can put into it and pull out of it. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of like this, it's kind of like like a diversified portfolio where you can bring food in and then you can share with others and mm-hmm. then you can you know, get hurt one day, but then you're still going to be fed by your troop. Mm -hmm. So you're able to kind of decrease your risk by diversifying your portfolio, by kind of living in this tribe. Mm -hmm. And that's why, like, people, especially kids, like, parents always kind of, like, dog their kids for doing stupid things for social acceptance. But, like, that is, like, their nature is Mm -hmm. to cohere to whatever group is present. And they'll do almost anything to find that cohesion. Yeah, I uh, I think um, one thought I had about that cohesion versus the uh, the hierarchy there was that um, the social connection and correct me if I'm wrong the the social connection is below your self esteem and self thought. So it, it seems like you're that's below it on the scale. So you would need it you would need that before you move up to the next tier. And that's kind of like, I need to fit in with this group more than I need to exactly find my sense of self. So like people will like, I mean, especially kids like bend over backwards to be accepted and sometimes to their detriment. But, um, it just seems like that it takes priority over sense of self. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot where our sense of self comes from is like having a tribe of people like especially like if you think about it like once you're visiting with your grandma or your mom or some friends or even different friend groups Mm -hmm. like you're always kind of displaying 
a very different version of yourself. And mm-hmm. so, like, our sense of self is, I think, very much hinging upon the people who were around. Mm-hmm. And so, especially as far as self-esteem goes, like, I think, it like, like, for our generation, a lot of it was, self-esteem was just, like, if you just tell them that they have self-esteem mm-hmm. and that they have self-worth, they'll just have it. Mm-hmm. And, like, kids are smart enough, and that's, like, the whole participation trophy thing, and, like, kids are smart enough to know that being rewarded when they shouldn't be rewarded, they, they know that it is, like, inauthentic. Worthless. Kind yeah, of. and then it's worthless. And it actually kind of makes them feel bad mm-hmm. for being, like, called out, like, oh, you were here, congratulations. Yeah. Like, they're smart enough to know. Yeah, and I, that kind of um, hinders growth, I would imagine, like, being um, just... just uh, because because you can give, I suppose, uh, maybe internal, external. If you are giving an external reward to somebody who knew that they didn't do well, like if you were a soccer game with participation trophies, it's like, you know that you lost, but you still got a trophy. It's like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why do I have this? Yeah, and the kids who won, like, we're always... And it's not that, especially, and this is coming back to the motivation thing, it's like the internal motivation like I am interested in the game I want to play it because it's fun you know like Mm -hmm. teamwork with my friends and kind of overcoming these optimal challenges and there's also winning which can be a motivator for sure like Mm -hmm. you want to win but you also want to just engage competently in this game Mm -hmm. so there's like there and then so tying back to the rewards like the whole there's two, I guess, extremes, and there's, like, the competitive extreme where it's, like, winning is what matters. Like, we're out mm-hmm. here to win. This is the goal. Like, f- like fuck the game. Like, <laughs> we're here for the shiny trophy. Like, yeah, yeah. And so that kind of, and in the long run, that actually makes people less interested and less engaged in the game itself. Right. But on the other hand, when everyone gets the same reward for the same effort, mm-hmm. essentially... They're trying to be competent and learn how to engage in an activity effectively, mm-hmm. but the rewards do not change with the change in effort. Right. So the information is the same. So mm-hmm. then that will tend to decrease interest and motivation for right. that. So we need to find this balance between relying and overemphasizing extrinsic winning mm-hmm. versus being like, well the you know the outcome doesn't matter at all because outcomes should just be informational right so and then that kind of fosters this enjoyment of the game right and yeah and it's like not this game now but the set of games i will continue to play and improve my competence in whatever domain it is like it's chess it's like whatever what any anything in life but um yeah um I was thinking of like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. So like those, the uh, the reward, the like intrinsic reward that you get for being, um, be expanding your domain of competency while you're optimally engaged in one of these games, um, is is a lot more rewarding than say if you if you just won but you're playing against people that are like obviously worse than you. So the outcome isn't as important as the the process, which is what you were saying. Mm-hmm. That's why people are so engaged in like high level like 
football, basketball games, like especially like Super Bowl and like mm-hmm. um, NBA Finals, whatever. They're like, these are the best of the best right now, and they are trying. They have all the incentive in the world to be playing at their best level between each other. Mm-hmm. So that's like that's like the most fun thing to watch. Yeah, and the fact that like. If winning was the outcome, MLB teams would roam around like the suburbs and just cut <laughs> junior high like teams like oh we killed them like a hundred and one to 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 zip like so it's and that's like they collect together and then play the best people like you know so there we do have this natural drive for just being in this challenge like we want to have that optimal challenge like what's an appropriate thing for me and it, it is kind of like. It is, like, a very soft domain to, like, look into and study and research. Kind of, like, you need to have your own sense of, like, you know, this right now, I'm in, like, a bored area. Like, Mm -hmm. this is not challenging enough, and so I don't like it. Or it's just too much, and then you kind of get into, like, stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And it kind of has to do with flow states of, like, balancing this optimal engagement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, That that optimal engagement... um is like the best like zone of learning um that's a thing i read about or heard i forget but um is that like baby talk between like mothers to their to their children um is always just a bit outside of the uh the range that the the child knows so you're talking to a toddler and you might throw in a couple words that they don't exactly know what they mean but in context they can kind of derive the meaning of so like you're expanding the vocabulary without even thinking about it. And um, that's, like, just one example of, like, these these ways to move forward um, at, at the right speed. So you're not going to read, like, a encyclopedia to a 18-month-old, mm-hmm. obviously. But, like, you can you can tell what's too easy for them. And they're, they're not growing at all. It's like, okay, I'm parenting this child that is a perpetual baby yeah Yeah. (laughs) so no and i think that's partially what's interesting about the like the intrinsic motivation and especially like we obviously live in like this large-scale society like extrinsic incentives are needed Mm -hmm. we need to pay employees we need to pay for housing and like things need to have extrinsic prices and motivations need to be there especially for institutions like but so intrinsic motivation really just applies to like subjective agents like you and me have intrinsic motivation and gm does not like Mm -hmm. you know it's a different thing so that's that's like much more psychologically based Mm -hmm. but so i guess i'll give you like the basic conditions where intrinsic motivation arise and essentially the first thing we need is autonomy and autonomy is different from control, whereas control kind of refers to uh, manipulating the outcome of a behavior, whereas autonomy just refers to having choice over a behavior. And so it's not so much of being like, you know, you have no choice at all, or you have free reign, and we're just permissive. Like, mm-hmm. you can do whatever you want. Like, a lot of the times it's like, you can have, like, okay, you know, we need to do math problems at school, here are three sets of math problems, choose the, you know, choose one that you want to do. And so that increase in choice, that the fact that you can be like, okay, this is the one I want to do the most. Mm -hmm. And then that is going to kind of spark 
a little bit of interest and a little bit more engagement. And then like learning, you said, is like, since it is optimal, then you're going to be learning better. And then the second part from that is uh, competence, which we already talked about. And that's kind of, you're free to choose what you're going to engage in, but you also want to engage in that activity with skill and competence, not necessarily expertise, because I think a lot of people mistake it where you need to have 10,000 hours and be like, I am competent, now I enjoy it. Like, competence is a constant building and mm. progressing and learning. Like, you're going to enjoy an activity long before you're an expert. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, it's called, like, uh, purpose, but also relatedness, because it's often, like, a social, uh, a social context. But we like to choose the activities we engage in. Mm -hmm. We like to feel that we are competent in those activities, but we also like to know how those activities affect those around us, ourselves, and the broader world. Because we are very, like, cerebral creatures of intention, and we want to know how our behavior affects the world. Mm. And then with that, that kind of creates the environment required where intrinsic motivation will kind of flourish. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of like the trade-off with money or yeah like money is the best example for extrinsic where mm -hmm. you know i'll give you five dollars if you do this that will just happen like it's very easy mm -hmm. whereas intrinsic is much more of a um an emergent property of an environment okay i guess yeah that makes sense I, i'm trying to think of like an example for myself to fully understand this like i would say like running for you Right. Like, there's no purpose. Yeah. For, like, <laughs> I guess so, yeah. like, for, for, like, me to be like, okay, like, and you, so you run this, you run a bunch, more so, you're not outrunning any animals, mm -hmm. like, you're, get, you're getting a health benefit, but mm -hmm. the health benefits are far, like, the rate of return yeah. is, like, way lower yeah. at this point. Like, after you run, like, a marathon, you're like, oh, I can go 20 more. Like, <laughs> like there's no reason. And, like, yeah. even further, it's like, you're hurting after that. Your yeah. body's telling you to stop, but you keep wanting to go. Mm -hmm. And then even past that, on the extrinsic side, like, you're paying money and time mm -hmm. and effort into something that... You know, you don't have to pay to do it, but you yeah. choose to pay to right. do it. And so that's where, like, extrinsic motivation fits perfectly to explain away the behavior that physiological and sociological motivators do not. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, so, like, just... The, I would pick, like, the domain of what I'm choosing. So I guess... Um, and then, and then, what's appropriate for my level right now, mm -hmm. and how how I, you know, there's like those factors like how do I stack up against people, and um, I guess that's just kind of yeah that makes sense in that way. Um, yeah, um, it is definitely, and then I suppose the last piece of the puzzle is that. The motivation is important because it affects behavior, but we also want to see like that final piece that I talked about before where behavior 
relates to well-being and a lot of it does essentially um like one study did they got uh, undergrads and kind of surveyed them on what their goals were in the next couple of years and some people listed like sort of you know I want to make this amount of money, I want to live in this or get this job, mm-hmm. much more like extrinsically motivated mm-hmm. goals. And then some people had a lot more like softer intrinsic goals, like I want to improve my life or the life around me. So a lot more like that. Mm-hmm. And then they essentially, like two years later, got back in contact with them and asked them how they were doing, um, like psychologically if they're doing well or not, and then how are they doing on their goals. Mm-hmm. And they found that people who who met their extrinsic goals were no happier than when they were in college. Mm-hmm. And that's also ties back to sort of the problem with conditional mm-hmm. achievement. Not conditional, but like, a, yeah, I suppose conditional, but like achieving something that changes your vicinity, the things mm-hmm. around you. Mm-hmm. And we see no uptick. So that kind of ties back to the paraplegic and the lottery winner, where Mm -hmm. that doesn't really change it in the long run either. And then the intrinsic people, when they sort of hit them and ask them how they're doing Mm -hmm. and if they're meeting their goals, those who are meeting their goals were happier. And they also had like lower rates of mental illness as well, lower rates of depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So there is this connection to well-being as well like the motivations and well-being do have a link okay so yeah that makes sense uh i guess thank you what was that um that that study you were telling me about with the like um mood every day at a certain time. Oh, what was yeah, that yeah. about? Yeah, so that's just, um, that's like a testing method. The, I think it's like the quantitative, it's like the quantitative mood evaluation where essentially they just, because there's two ways to measure happiness essentially. So there's satisfaction and then there is, I guess, positive affect is the best way to put it. Um, since a lot of people frame it as just happiness, but positive affect is just like, a range of possible positive emotions Mm -hmm. and satisfaction is more of a recollective analysis of your life which is like up until this point how satisfied are you with your life so it kind of puts you in this um recollective Mm -hmm. mood where you're thinking okay well i'm married i have a house blah 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 or like you know I did this, well, I failed that. So you're kind of thinking about your past achievements and failures, especially compared to how they stack up against a cultural standard. Mm -hmm. Whereas positive affect is just like, okay, how are you feeling right now? One out of 10. And Mm -hmm. there's no priming to be like, think about your life as a whole. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of like, you wake up seven o'clock, how are you feeling? Well, I'm tired. Well, I'm hungry. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, me and my wife got in a fight, whatever. Mm -hmm. So things are going well at work, blah, blah, blah. And so that kind of tests this more in-the-moment happiness, which is, for me, kind of what I'm more interested in. Um, Especially the folly of some of that. And that's more like, that kind of relates to the experiencing and remembering self. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think, like, the experiencing self is kind of the more 
like visceral mm-hmm. important like person versus like what you think yourself as okay so like and and those had to do with the like day to day kind of thing is like how how am i feeling um versus you know what do i think yeah yeah so mm-hmm. you said like cultural like what do i think of my life up until now mm-hmm. is like how how is your life going well it's pretty good. It's been pretty, yeah, it's yeah. been pretty good. It's like, how are you feeling right now? Well, I'm kind of pissed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm tired. Yeah, so, I'm like, tired. a bad night of sleep can, like, ruin that, basically. And so are these, like, um, that for that testing method, are these, like, aggregated and, like, averaged? And what kind of do they do with this data? Yeah, essentially. They'll just, uh, essentially... And they can map it out over times to be like, okay, people tend to be extremely positive affect when they are eating and when they're having sex, which is like the two top ones, which maps on perfectly to the physiological motivator. It's just like, obviously, there's like extreme pleasure and approach behavior. Like, this is what I like. It's like what we're wired to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, obviously, that's that's true. But then, so... People, and especially it's important to link up, like, how you're feeling and what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So, like, you can get pinged in traffic, and that's one of people's lowest times. Is like, they're in traffic, they have to sit there, Mm -hmm. so lack of autonomy. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like, there's nothing to do that you can't, no matter what you do, there's not going to be a change. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, the the purpose is to get home. But, like, there's nothing you can do to control it or Mm -hmm. to be autonomous over it. So there's a very low, we see a reflection of like a very low um, feeling, a very low mood during this time. Right. But so, and then the other part, and this was kind of uh, developed by the flow state researcher. Hmm. So that's why we see people who are like, especially like engaged in cooking or running or Hmm. something that could be traditionally referred to as work. Um, they actually find that people who are in work environments actually, although they cognitively report experiencing lower moods at work, like, oh, I don't like my job, you know, I just go there because I have to, they actually report having better psychological moods at work than they do in leisure, Hmm. which was like a fundamental switch. Hmm. That's interesting. Like, I wonder if that is like the perception of moving towards a goal or something if you're at work rather than leisure if you didn't have a like some productive use of time after or is that yeah. am I missing well I think I think and especially it's obviously not true for all workers like right. it's definitely like this sort of sense of engagement and challenge like mm-hmm. those jobs especially receive this so if you're kind of in a job that's more like apathetic or way too high stress and importantly, there needs to be a balance between effort expended and rewards coming in. Or mm-hmm. like, so if you have a high demand job and you have like no control over it, that is not going to be something that's enjoyable. Because mm-hmm. again, like you're high demand and you have no control over it. You're not yeah. going to be motivated to do it or be engaged in it. Mm-hmm. But I think overall, like one thing, I mean, and this is kind of follows from people's like, like just depressive behavior is very low very like i would mellow is a like a kind of an undercut but like low energy and low effort Mm -hmm. and so 
the flip side of that is that like positive affect seems to just thrive on engagement and effort. Mm-hmm. That's what I think is really important is that happiness is just a function of effort. Mm-hmm. Positive affect is just a function of effort. And the more effort you put in, the more you're going to get out of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Or should be to be optimally engaged. Yeah. Um, I think um, maybe talk about like reward um, like systems. So like uh, there's something um, in this book I read about um, B.F. Skinner where it, he had the, uh, the pigeons and whatever. Um, but he kind of uh, did a lot of research on the the reward system, so positive versus negative, um, the the magnitude of the reward, and the timing of the reward. Um, so I um, I think that and and when I um, was taking this um, psychology course in school, they were talking about how when the, the, the threshold for a reward should start out low in a new domain. So if you're, if you're teaching a toddler gymnastics, you'll start something really low and you're not going to expect much of them and you're going to give them praise when they do something right at all. Mm-hmm. And the same thing if you're like training your dog to pee outside is mm-hmm. like, you just like good poop or good pee outside. Yeah, yeah. They did outside, ring a bell, whatever. And, um, and then as, as that person or dog grows in its ability to recognize, I have to pee, I ring the bell, we go outside, we come inside, um, it kind of becomes a habit and you don't need to reward as often, but in those, in those beginning stages, you need to do it like every single time Mm. without fail. And the thing, another thing I, um, read about when you're, teaching your kids um, how to behave there's a uh, there's it's not the severity or the magnitude of the punishment or reward um, but it's the consistency mm-hmm. and and um, basically just consistency and the immediacy after the mm-hmm. action has taken place so if you don't want your kids to scream like a banshee in the middle of a restaurant <laughs> you you need to let them know that with the same you need to let them know that when it's happening a lot of people will um kind of wait till they're in the car wait till we get home or whatever mm-hmm. kind of thing and it's like okay well if you do it right now it doesn't need to be severe as like getting your butt whooped yeah um, but if you let them know right away that that that's not okay and that's not okay here and that's not okay at home, then you can kind of have that built into them. Yeah. And kids don't have the respect for time to be like, I was acting out an hour and a half ago and right. I'm getting whooped now for it. And like, I am fine now. I ate and I'm fine. <laughs> but... Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, there, there's a, a story I heard of somebody that um, I know where they would the parents wouldn't um wouldn't do something for one or two or three times when this um behavior happened if they were acting up or whatever and then like third or fourth time maybe a day later they would just like get their ass beat yeah. and so it's like 
where where's the context in this? And it's yeah. like it's like you know what you did, and it's like I don't know what I did. I'm a kid. Yeah, I, yeah, it's yeah. Like, what did I do? I'm a child. And, yeah. and this happened a day ago, and it happened three or four times before that. How should I know when not to do this? Yeah. Well, then this is part of the thing, like the balance between having autonomy and having a competent environment, because mm-hmm. a lot of the people where. They kind of say, like, seek autonomy or give autonomy to people because then they'll be more engaged. But then the flip side is, like, well, then we're just being permissive. We're allowing everything. It's like, well, no, it's not that simple. Like, we need autonomy, but we also need to feel competent. So we need limits to be set Mm. around us. Like, we need to know where the line is so we can react to it well. Like, that's very important. And there was a super interesting study where they kind of had three, uh, researchers had three groups of children, um, and they're just kids who were just painting, basically. Mm -hmm. And there was really no objective besides just to be clean with the paints, like, Mm -hmm. be neat, basically. And one group had no limits, so they're just kind of the control, uh, paint as you will. The next group was, uh, controlling limits, where it said, uh, you know, you need to be clean with the paint because um, other children are going to use this. Like, you ought to, you should, sort of like, this is much more of a controlling um, inf- like way to pass off this information. Mm-hmm. And then the third group was informational limits, where they said, although it may be fun to make a mess with the paints, uh, you need to be aware that other children want to use these paints too, so please be careful. Please be neat. And what they found was that the motivation was similar for people who had informational limits and who had no limits. And the people who had controlling limits were much less interested in the activity. Mm-hmm. But even further, the kids who had informational limits even reported to enjoy the activity more than those who had no limits at all. Mm-hmm. So they are searching, and we all are just searching for autonomy but also knowing that we are competent and where the line is so we know how to interact with an activity at work or at school effectively Mm -hmm. yeah that's uh i think having those like parameters is is i mean obviously important and it's kind of i i i was thinking earlier when you were talking about um the motivators for like i like to run and that's a motivation for me. And then I have this like control over it and to some degree. And then I have these parameters of how far I run or whatever. And I was thinking like if you're entering like what I thought is like if you're entering into like a drawing contest for like a newspaper or something, it would be it would be easier for you probably and for a judge of this to give you some set of parameters like I do like a recreation of like a Spider-Man or, or mm. some, some sort of like parameters where it's like, okay, I'm not just drawing whatever the hell I want. Mm. Um, it's, there's like a, I, I feel like it's easier to kind of navigate once you know what the parameters are. And if there's no parameters and, and in essence, quote, freedom from whatever, it's like, well, you're kind of lost without the parameters. And it, that doesn't really, I feel like that produces more anxiety. Yeah. In like, whatever you're doing no exactly that's like that is like this flip off this trade-off between autonomy and competence like you want to have autonomy but we also need the limits so we understand 
how to interact well. Like, that is the thing. Like, we want freedom, but we also need the environment to let us know, like you said, consistently. Mm-hmm. And not, yeah, inconsistently, essentially, is just, like, if you just, like, yell at your kid, if you're passive, or if you are, like, congratulate your kid when he does the same object mm-hmm. or the same activity. Um he's gonna be like i can't find the boundary here and so you have kids who are like lashing out and parents who are like blase mm-hmm. like they are not like a lot of people will shit on the kid like they are just not pushing on they're not giving the kids a boundary mm-hmm. they don't know where the line is and they're just trying to find it yeah and the parents are just not giving their kid a limit mm-hmm. they're searching for it yeah and that that sort of like um like behavior response from the parent is is it if it's contextual then there's something they can glean from when it's appropriate to do which action but but if it's contextual only because mom's in a mood today and she wants mm-hmm. to yell at you because you're having fun in the yard but on any, any other day if you know that's just like her her mood going off of like i mean like what's acceptable when it's acceptable. Mm-hmm. So, um, just like the consistency thing, I think, is most important for learning. Mm-hmm. And that that also goes back to, like, when you're at work and let's say you have high demand and, like, low autonomy, like an inconsistent... And especially the important thing is, like, if you're at a job where you put in a high-level effort and a low-level effort and you get the same response... Like, you're not going to feel motivated to do any more work. Like, I'm putting in all this effort, and a shit job and a great job get the same response. Mm -hmm. Like, this is a bad environment for my intrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you're just there for the dollar because there is no motivation to be engaging in that activity. Yeah. And I think that also, like, movement forward or unresponsive, like, um, like, the if one second if if (laughs) so there's no be it like a monetary reward for doing better is one thing so if you're getting the same amount of money just for being there good or bad job that's one thing but then if there's like a a non-response from your peers who are also in this job so let's say like you're a cashier and if you mess up all the time and nothing bad happens or you do great all the time and nothing good happens, then it doesn't really matter what you do. But if you have like an attentive manager or something and you're always doing well, you will strive to do well even if you're making the same amount of money to gain that positive response. Mm-hmm. Typically. Yeah. And people tend to, like when they list what they're looking for in jobs, I think payment, like a good salary, is often like below the fifth thing that they list. It's a very low tier thing. I think that would have to do with, so like that testing method you said, like how are you feeling right now? Mm -hmm. Is like, I, you know, if you're having a good day at work or a bad day at work, that's more immediate than, oh, I'm only making $10 an hour doing whatever I'm doing. Yeah, because it's a condition. Yeah. It is, it is like, what it is kind of a situation. Yeah, this is what I'm getting. I know what I'm getting. But if I go into work and I'm getting a different thing every day for, for whatever reason, then it's like no control there. There's mm-hmm. no control over your surroundings or like people's perception of you, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, so money definitely is like an important factor. 
And uh, definitely an interesting thing is that what they find is that if the job you're doing is sort of pleasant or unpleasant, you enjoy it the most when you're focused on it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of ties back to the intrinsic motivation and engagement. Like, like you're going to have to go to work and you're going to have to do a job no matter what. Mm-hmm. And it might not necessarily be the most, you know, fulfilling or whatever. But either way, you're better off if you just attempt to focus on it and engage with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I um, what, what was that? Uh, um, in the Fairly Odd Parents or whatever, where uh, Timmy's dad was a pencil pusher. And so, <laughs> like, I feel like if you're just you're just in a room by yourself for eight hours a day, and you're making tons and tons of money, that's like a third of your waking or like half of your waking yeah. life for however long. It's like, great, I have all this money, but I like half of my life is sitting in a room doing something I'm not engaged in at all versus like I'm not making that much money but I love my job like like I don't know yeah I I don't know an example but like yeah well I think like that's I think that especially is much more important because there is and especially the the relationship between money and well-being I think is just a very interesting area of investigation and you know I went to school for economics like I definitely am not like, you know, money, money cannot buy happiness. Like I think four words is a bit too simple to explain that Mm -hmm. relationship. Mm -hmm. So what they find is that there's obviously, you know, money can't buy happiness, but money can buy safety and security, food and a home. And that yields fantastic happiness. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of see a steep relationship between money and happiness in between, you know, zero and $50,000 a year for a household. And likewise, you see a stronger relationship between money and happiness in poorer countries than you do richer countries, Mm -hmm. just because they have this sort of economies of scale, which has a greater return once you have a little bit. Mm. But it doesn't just kind of tap out at that moment. Like once you hit 50,000, the slope tends to go down it tends to diminishing returns yeah exactly diminishing returns so you get a little bit less the more you get Mm -hmm. once you hit 50 but between 50 and 85,000 there still is a significant minority of happiness to be gained Mm -hmm. and um in uh status syndrome uh by i think michael mormon um he basically argues that anything beyond that sort of allows for social participation um, and autonomy. Mm-hmm. So there's this importance of like, okay, I have food and water and whatever, like I can live mm-hmm. physically, but beyond that, more money means I get to control my choices more, I get to spend more time with friends and family, and both of those things definitely bolster happiness. But once you hit 85,000, things tend to like taper off. like there's going to be much less return mm-hmm. on investment when it comes to making more money past 85000 mm-hmm. And that, that's for the positive affect because, and this is it's just a very interesting paper by uh, Danny Kahneman, who we both like. Um, but so, like, positive affect has a different relationship with money. Satisfaction has a different relationship with money and stress. So there are great 
it's just a very interesting, like, the different ways you measure your well-being, mm-hmm. there's a different relationship. But positive affect, I think, is kind of, like, the, the gold standard, at least for me. Mm-hmm. I think that um, with that, with that um, decreasing rate of increased happiness as you move up a pay scale mm-hmm. would also be contextual on your your attitude towards money so if you see it as a resource for change like if you're going to if you're going to use this to help build something or you're going to help house people or you're going mm-hmm. to versus like I got an $80,000 watch it's like yeah great cool whatever but like if you have it and you're using it as a resource for change that you can see I feel like that is also different. But, yeah. But. Yeah, no, there is, like, this relation. So, like, having money kind of refers to your conditions. Like, mm-hmm. you can afford a house, and then beyond that, you have autonomy and social participation. But also on the day-to-day, like, you can spend money better and increase your happiness. Mm-hmm. And a couple of the ways I know is um, people are happier, even though, like, They'd rather have money themselves. Mm-hmm. They've done experiments where they give out money and then ask people to spend it on themselves or spend it on a friend. Mm-hmm. And later in the day, once they've spent money on a friend, they report to be happier mm-hmm. than they were earlier in the day. Mm-hmm. And that is also, they controlled for the amount of money given. Even though we'd rather have more money for ourselves, mm-hmm. it turned out that spending money on others, regardless of the amount, is what drove our happiness. Mm-hmm. And that kind of ties back. And especially um, spending money on stronger ties. Mm-hmm. So your strongest social ties are going to yield you the most benefit back, mm-hmm. which totally makes sense as far as like our very tribal nature, like the nested social circle. Yeah. I... Do you think there's any... I mean, I, there must be, but like people who always give... Uh, money to panhandlers versus not at all do you think it's like a kind of a selfish gift is like i feel good when i feel like i'm helping somebody like i i gave this guy on the corner five dollars versus i just rolled past him Mm. is that is that's like that's kind of five dollars for me to feel like i did something Mm. whether it went to whatever this guy bought yeah yeah i guess this is one of the things that i really don't feel too too bad about um and this is kind of where it blends the line where it's like helping people feels good. Like mm-hmm. I help people and I feel better. People get helped and I get helped. Like mm-hmm. this kind of blends the line between being selfish and being selfless. Like we're very just group oriented. Mm-hmm. So kind of putting into a group, whether kind of like you said, like in charity where it's like impersonal, like I don't know this person, mm-hmm. but I felt good doing it. Or if you do it in your immediate family or close friend group, Like, doing something nice feels good. And I guess I don't have a problem with that. It's like a situation where both people, both parties are doing better. Mm -hmm. And just because you get something out of it, it's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I I think that um, maybe specific, not specifically money probably, but like to a point where if there's not reciprocity at some point in time and there's like a continued, um, you're helping this person all the time and there's no even gratitude or, mm-hmm. or anything given in response, you, I feel like people get more st- stringent or um, stingy yeah, on, their, yeah. on their 
willingness to give forth for nothing. Yeah. Well, and this is, like, something that is common with, like, primates and humans. Like, primates spend, like, an amazingly equal amount of time grooming each other. Like, the amount and the, like, the closest connections tend to groom each other equally as much. So, Mm -hmm. like, they don't have, like, this ledger for, like, oh, you groomed me for five minutes. Mm -hmm. You get me for five. Oh, you did a bad job. Like, now you go for <laughs> six minutes. Like, no, no. I always think it's just kind of like this um, cognitive heuristic for, like, social connection. Like, this is a close, like, I feel I've spent a lot of time with this person, so I'm going to put in and they're going to put in. Like, we have this heuristic to spend more time with those closer to us than with those farther away. And these are, like, changing states. So, like, you have a new friend, like you put a little bit into it and then it builds to a bigger friendship over the Mm -hmm. years and then you have a a much more kinetic relationship. There's a lot Mm -hmm. more information and experience going in between them. Mm -hmm. Do you you think that that um, maybe, (laughs) I don't know, fosters like a pity type of deal like if uh, maybe back and forth like I groom you, you groom me, but, um, but, I can tell maybe you're not doing a great job, but you're trying. And they're like, I'll be friends with you because you're trying, but but you're not that great at it. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I also think maybe grooming another monkey maybe is not that hard. (laughs) Well, maybe. Yeah, who knows? You ever tried? (laughs) Nah, no. No, but I mean, I think that, and then we see the same thing in humans. Like, people are incredibly precise not even at a cerebral level with the reciprocity, like the amount that people give in and, or especially if they receive, Mm -hmm. um, uh, like, uh, you know, like a gift or Mm -hmm. like uh, a favor, Mm -hmm. like it's, people are very quick to want to do it back. Like, Oh yeah, well of course, like, Mm -hmm. you know, there wants to be this sort of reciprocity and candor in between your social connections. Do you think that has um, maybe between people like a uh, a um, kind of like a scale where you kind of can tell like I guess it'd be kind of not the greatest to expect more from somebody who has more, but if you can tell that they're like like I got you this and it's like this like you have a millionaire friend and he gives you like a $5 Amazon gift card for your birthday. Yeah. And then you have a friend who's like paycheck to paycheck and he gets you like a something nice, you know, mm. that kind of thing. Do you think that's just like, you can kind of innately tell like this person gives more of a shit about me than. Yeah. Well, I think we also have a very fine tune for proportionality, mm-hmm. like fairness as far as proportionality goes, like, to know how much someone has and how much they give into, like we automatic, it's kind of like like um, like price level for like salary. Like I also kind of reference that like money is is important, but it needs to be measured against the price level. So like, uh, you live in Davenport, and then Jaleel lives in uh, Berkeley, and so your guys's relationship between money and happiness is going to be very different Mm -hmm. and so the same way is with like with reciprocity like there is going to be like a personal standard Mm -hmm. against which is measured Mm -hmm. like how much do you have like the five dollar gift card from a millionaire like yeah that is almost a dick move (laughs) (laughs) give me nothing yeah (laughs) yeah honestly (laughs) like that was that's a friendship ender yeah bye (laughs) yeah thanks man yeah 
All right, well, we're coming up on like an hour here, so I think I'll wrap it up with that. Um, is there anything else you want to say? Uh, no, just I'm glad we <laughs> got it done. It was fun to come down and do it in person. Right. Yeah, we've been trying to do this over, uh, over voice uh, recording for like a couple of weeks now, so uh, it's nice to have it done finally. Yeah, glad to be on the podcast. For sure. Um, all right. And that is all for today. Till next time. Bye.